Almighty God, who has poured upon us the new light of thine incarnate word, grant that the same light, enkindled in our hearts, may shine forth in our lives, through the same Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, the first Sunday after Christmas, December the 26th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. It's been a good week here at our house in Asheville. I hope you've had a good week as well. Uh, been kind of a busy-ish week, I guess. Since the, since I did the last podcast, it's been a busy week. We went to Tennessee, saw, spent some several days with family and friends in Chattanooga, and then came home and had a wonderful uh, birthday party, thanks to my friend Anne Marie on um, Monday night, which was my birthday. And so that was wonderful. And had a good week since then, but kind of a busy week, but not, you know, not getting too much done, it feels like. I don't have anything to show for it, but I feel like I've had a busy week. It's been cool here over the last several days, and I'm kind of reframing some things uh, that I'm doing and, and trying to come up with some ideas for how I want to change things in my life for next year, kind of making those New Year's resolutions. So it's been a, a good um week or 10 days, really, of kind of thinking about those things and musing on the Incarnation, which to me is one of the, it's the single most important event in human history. Because without the Incarnation, there is no crucifixion, there's, there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. But the, the choice of God to come into the world in the form of a little child who would grow and live among uh, his people is just a powerful, powerful image. And so I, I just... I'm always drawn to it, uh, the Incarnation, in ways that, that just cause me to marvel that the God who could create all these things could come into this world in the way that he did. And with the purpose in mind that he did, it's the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams of mankind. And so it, it's always a profound season for me. And it has been, more or less, ever since I sort of came back to the Lord. And what I mean by that is, is that I've never... Uh, went through a period in my life when I doubted the truth of any of the um, of anything. <laughs> Actually, uh, I've never doubted the truth of uh, the gospel. I've never doubted the truth of the witness of the church or any of those kinds of things. It's just it didn't make any difference in my life for a very long time. It was a, a not a part of my life except for when I went to church. Um, and so, since I've come back to the Lord, the most important season for me has always been Advent and Christmas. Um, simply because it was a, it was in the fall of the year, or late August, I guess it was, and then sort of I was coming to him, and then it was as though the Holy Spirit was opening the eyes of my heart during this season of Advent to a new sense of wonder and anticipation. And so I've always kind of come to this season with great expectations and, and great hope for... Um, for drawing near to God again. And, and it's we do go through, I think, seasons in our lives when we're closer and when, when we're further away. And, and sometimes that has to do with not understanding things. Sometimes it has to do with just a dryness in our own lives. And we allow the uh, cares of the world, for instance, to kind of overwhelm where we are. And so we, here we are the second day of Christmas. So I hope you got two turtle doves today. I didn't, but I didn't really expect to. 
But anyway, we so here we move into the lessons today, and we're going to begin with Isaiah 61.10 to 62.3. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. What a wonderful beginning to a, to a lesson, right? Because that's where we should be right now. We should be greatly rejoicing in the Lord, and, and my soul should exult in my God. And then Isaiah goes on to say why that's true. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. It's, a, it's true, and, and it's, it should be the song of our hearts today. It should be that, that we, we should rejoice in the Lord because he has clothed us in garments of salvation and covered you with the robe of righteousness. And there, there, you should see the imagery there in the prodigal son, actually, because when, when he comes back to the, to the father, he comes and he's ready to make his little speech about how he has sinned against him and then to propose the way forward you know, I'm willing to be your slave. What does the father do? He says, no, 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 no. You're my son. Bring the robe, bring the ring, and bring sandals. Reclothe this one who was lost and is now found. And so this, these garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness is the way that, that the father in the um, parable, the prodigal son, receives that son. He, he has forgiven his sins. And he has given him new life as a son again in his household. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. It's the intention of God... And we know this from Revelation. It's always been the intention of God to, 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 that heavenly Jerusalem will be perfect and pure. And it will be the center of the universe. It'll be the center of the worship of God, this, the place where God's people collect because he's there. And so that's the, the point of um, the incarnation is, is that God is among us. And in the same way that Jesus dwelt among us, dwelt among men and women in his day, so then he will be present always in the heavenly city of Jerusalem. And so all nations will stream to that place. And there's a place for all of us there in Jerusalem. And so this, the proclamation of Isaiah, Isaiah is seeing past the short-term horizon of just the return of, of the people to Israel after their exile in Babylon, but that's certainly in mind, and and it's certainly part of what he's seeing, but he's seeing a greater salvation, a greater return from exile, because what he's seeing is a permanent return from exile, God's presence again in that place, and God's people displaying his glory by the righteousness of their lives. So God's people being exactly what they were intended to be, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation serving the Lord. And that's what Isaiah sees. He sees the perfected Jerusalem and the perfected people of God inhabiting that city. And so that's exactly what he's seeing, and he's proclaiming this. And Isaiah sees it again and again that the, that the nations will be brought in 
to Jerusalem, that the word will go forth from this place of all that their God has done, and people will stream to the brightness of the light and to the righteousness that is there. They'll be drawn to that righteousness. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. He's speaking to this Jewish exile community that that has one longing, and that longing is to get back to their land, the land that God gave them, the place where he dwells, to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. And he's speaking to that group of people and encouraging them to continue the race and encouraging them to see past the present circumstances to a time when God will do this thing. And it is sure and certain that he will indeed do this thing. And he will make his people glorious because he will make his name great and he will put his name upon them. And Isaiah says, you'll be called by a new name in those days. You will be the redeemed. And we're told in in the book of the Revelation that we too will receive a new name in that time to come. About 20 years ago in Rwanda, the um, everywhere I would go, children particularly would, would shy away from me a little bit and they would kind of you know hide their faces and, and I would hear the whispers behind me and I don't understand Kenya Wandan, but I did understand one word and that word was Mzungu and that means white person. And so they were a little bit afraid of me because I was different from them. And so the, these children would, would shy away, and occasionally they'd come up and touch my skin or touch—I did have a little more hair in those days, and so they would touch my hair and things like that. And so I was asked to speak in the cathedral up in um, Shira Diocese in Ruangari. And so I, I spoke, and, and I wanted, as I always like to do, I like to make some sort of a personal connection before I begin to preach the Word. I like to, to know we're all on the same team, that I'm not here to lecture you. And so I'll do some sort of self-effacing humor or something frequently. And, and so I, I just want to make sure that I flatten everything and that I'm not standing above, I'm standing with. So I, what I told him was is about this stone on which the new name would be written. And, and I said, I've always wanted this to be something that would give joy, particularly to children. And so I, I knew, having been in Rwanda then and, and, and seen how this worked, that what, what I would do, and, and that is, is that my new name would be Mazungu. And people laughed. Um, it was it was a nervous kind of a laughter because it's sort of em- embarrassing to, to to feel like oh I'm a little bit backward. But that's not what I meant by any stretch of the imagination. It was just one of those things where you where you look and you say, Lord, what would your new name? What would my new name be? Well, it would give delight to Him. It would express something of the delight that God has in me. But then it would also be something that would delight other people as well. And so that it's important that we prepare ourselves to not only receive our new name, but to live into that new name as well. And the only way we can do that is to closely follow him, to obey his commandments, and to live the way he would have us live, to deny the flesh and live according to his dictates. It's it's important that we prepare ourselves now for the life that's to come, and we prepare ourselves best for it by living it, (laughs) by living into the way we know that God wants us to live and walking in those ways. And we can do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. We won't do it perfectly. We'll continue to sin, but, but we should desire the things God desires for us in order that we might please Him.
And so that our goal should be to please him in all that we do and all that we say and all that we think. I have some work to do. The gospel lesson today is John 1, the first 18 verses, which is John's beautiful prologue to the gospel. He's going to give us all that we need to know right here at the beginning, and then he's going to tell us why we should believe exactly what he just told us he believes. He's going to give us all the proofs, the signs of John's gospel, and he's going to tell us later in chapter 21 that he wrote this gospel for one particular reason, and that is is that, that you would believe that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. And so here are the things John would have us believe in order that we would have life in his name. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John begins by going back to uh, the very beginning, by going back to the beginning words of the book of Genesis. In beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what he's telling us is, is that Jesus was there before things were created, that the Word, who is Jesus, was in beginning with God, and the Word was God. So it's coextensive with God. So John's making a Trinitarian statement right here, that Jesus and God are inextricably linked with one another, and and the Council of Nicaea struggled with how do we express that best, and finally landed on the word homoousius, which is the same substance. So whatever God is, Jesus is as well. And so, so John's saying he was there in the beginning, but he was not distinct from God. He is God. Those are not two separate things. And he says he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so when John says that all things were made through him, he means so many different things, not the least of which is, how did God create? He created by speaking words. And so Jesus was the animating principle of all of creation. And so everything was infused with him from the beginning because everything was created through him, through the incarnate word. And without him was not anything made that was made. There's no other creator other than God. There's nothing that has come into being in that way. Nothing has ever come into the universe that God didn't bring into that universe. And then in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Is a powerful, powerful statement. It's referring to the primordial light. And that's that first light, let there be light. Because that's not the light of the sun, the moon, or the stars. Those are created later. In the beginning was this light. And the way that Jewish people understand this is that it, the Jewish rabbis understand it is that this is the light that truly gives light and life to all men. And so that light, they believe, was a light by which you could see from one end of the universe to the other. And that means more than just space. It means time as well. Because time is a movement across space. And so it, it, there, the, what happened was in sin—this is Jewish belief—what happened in sin, the sin of the first humans, the, the light, the Shekinah glory of God rested on those people, but it was taken away. And that light, by which people might be able to see all these things, the results of their, circumst- or the results of their actions, was removed. Because then— They could make their sinful schemes come to fruition. And so it had to go away. 
our vision had to be darkened, but the light has never completely been overcome by darkness, and the darkness would be our sin. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. This is not the John of the gospel being referred to here. This is John the Baptist, the one who comes, the final prophet of the Old Testament, and the final priest in many ways of the Old Testament as well. John comes to bear witness to Jesus. That was his purpose for coming into the world, and we see that in Luke 1, and we see it when his father, Zechariah, we see it in his song, song that, that he is the one who will go before, the one who will come and make known the Messiah. And that's exactly what he does when he points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's a priestly function. He's telling you that sacrifice right there is the one sufficient to take away sin. And it was the job of the priest to examine the sacrifices that were brought to him. And he had to look at those, and he make sure, had to make sure that they, were, they, they met all God's specifications for purity. And, and if they did, then he could say, yes, this sacrifice will be acceptable to God, and it will take away sin. John points to Jesus and says, that one, that one right there, that's the Lamb of God, the Lamb that God himself has provided to take away the sins of the whole world. Not just Jewish people, but the sins of the whole world. That's him right there. That's a priestly function, is determine the fitness of a sacrificial animal, and that's exactly what John does. And he came to bear witness about that light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Those are painful, painful realities. We who are created in the image of God are intended to reflect that image of God back into the world in the same way that the moon reflects the light of the sun to the world. In other words, we are not going to be in total darkness because we have the sun by day and the moon by night. Here, it's again speaking of that true light that gives light to everyone, which allows us to see in a different way. We can see in an almost prophetic way through Jesus. And yet, what John tells us is he was in the world, and the world that he made didn't know him. And that's a sad, sad commentary. But the reality is, is that people already didn't know the nations didn't know. You know, here and there, people would come into the covenant community in the Old Testament. You'd have, you know, a onesie here, a onesie there. You get Rahab, you get um, Judah and Tamar. You get, you get these, these that come in, and ultimately you get this glorious thing with Ruth, who is the great-grandmother of David, who then, from the Davidic line, is where Jesus comes. And so you get these little conversions but generally, what we're told is this, that we were those people who sat in darkness, and we have seen a great light, and it, we've streamed to that light. So we, the world, that's who, who he's speaking of in the first part of this statement, is the world, the Gentiles, those people out there, outside the covenant, and they didn't know him. Well, it's not surprising, because we had lost all 
ability to know because we had immersed ourselves in belief in other gods. And then he says the worst part is he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They, they wouldn't accept him as Messiah. They would not receive him as God's promised um, deliverer. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, which means the Lord saves, that's what Yeshua means, he gave the right to become children of God. You know, I've had this discussion with people before, and that is, is that we were not creatures of God unless we believe in his Son. If we believe in the name of Jesus, that he fulfilled exactly the purpose of his name, again, we're going back to that name thing, so the purpose of his name is the Lord saves, and that's exactly what Jesus did. So his life was a proclamation of the truth of his name. And so we believe in his name. What that means is we believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He's the Messiah for all mankind, and he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. If we believe that, if we believe he is the way, the truth, and the life, if we believe that he is the only way to the Father, that he is the salvation of all mankind, that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, then we have the right to become children of God. We are creatures prior to that, created in his image, but we have the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. In other words, it's the same kind of thing that, that he tells to Nicodemus, and this, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born to a living hope. You have to be born of the Spirit. You don't get in simply because you were lucky in an accident of birth that brought you into the covenant community. He says, no, no, that's not enough, Jesus tells Nicodemus. You have to be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit. And here, that's exactly what John tells us all right here in the beginning, that you don't get in simply because you had a, a happy accident of birth. No, you get in because God's Holy Spirit gives you life, which means you were born. And Paul tells us you were dead in your sins prior to that. And so we have to be born again because we have all died in sin. And we're born to a new and living hope. And he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Most amazing statement ever made in the history of the world. God became flesh and dwelt among us. The actual verb there is tabernacled among us. So, in other words, it's the same principle of God in the Shekinah glory, filling the tabernacle, and then later when the temple was built, filling the temple in the same way, God's presence was among us. And what John says is that here, it was different than that. He became flesh, one of us. We were created in his likeness. He took on our likeness and came and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that mixture is an important thing. And we see it again and again and again in Jesus' life and the way that he approaches people. And, and I, it's a principle that I stumbled on several years ago. Um, a friend of mine asked me, that her, he told me that her brother had um, molested her when they were children. 
and now he was dying, and she was probably in her 60s at that time, and she said, John, I'm going to go see him. I don't know what to do. I want to tell him that I forgive him. Is that okay? And I said, give me a minute to think about that, pray about that. Maybe we'll come something. So what I began to understand then is this whole grace and truth concept, and that concept, I started seeing it from the perspective of Jesus' interactions with other people, whether it's dealing with Pharisees or whether it's dealing with repentant sinners. There seems to be one principle that runs through the entire um, gospel, and that is this. That is, when Jesus um, deals with people who are in the covenant, people who, are, who believe themselves to be righteous, he leads with truth. And grace is always there, and that truth is always the same, and that is that, that truth, for those who, who would question this woman who comes to Jesus, for instance, and washes his feet, the Pharisees who were there question and say if, if he only knew who this person was, um, then he wouldn't allow them to wash his feet. And Jesus tells a story then and says there were two people one owed a great debt and another owed a small debt. And if he forgave them both, which one do you think loved more? And the answer is, well, I guess it would be the one who was forgiven for more. And Jesus' response is, you do well. You get it. You're exactly right. This woman has done all of this, but you didn't provide me with basic hospitality. And so what he's saying is, is that this lady is confessing her sins and loving him at the same time. And so she's been forgiven much because she was a great sinner. And what he's saying to him is, you're not even acknowledging your sins. You may not be a great and public sinner like her, but you're a sinner nonetheless. And so he hits him between the eyes with truth, but that truth is intended to convey grace just because of the story that he told. It's the same grace that's on offer for both those people, but only one of them claimed it. So the grace is there, but truth had to be spoken. So those who are inside the covenant, he speaks the hard truth with grace on offer. When he speaks to other people outside the covenant community, he leads with grace. That's the reason with the woman at the well, he leads with an offer of grace. This water from within that wells up to eternal life. But we can't, she can't have that grace without the truth. Jesus says, you Samaritans, you worship, you know not what? Salvation comes from the Jews, and now go get your husband. So I, what I told my friend was, look, I had a situation several years ago where we had to deal with something in the community, a similar kind of sin in the community. And what, what we had to do first was we had to call that person in and say, this person accuses you of this. Grace is there, because that was the point of having the meeting, was to say we want to get through this and put this thing behind us, but we can't do that without dealing with truth. And so we, so we had to confront a brother in sin. And then we had to offer grace, forgiveness, on the back side of that. We're doing this for a particular reason. We want to restore the relationship now, with, with this other friend, I said, is your brother a believer? And she said, no, he's not. And I said, then you lead with tr grace. You lead with that forgiveness before there's repentance. Because that becomes the ground of repentance, knowing that grace is there on the back side of that. The grace is on the front side. It, it's a powerful thing. He's full of grace and truth, and both those things have to constantly be together. You can't have one without the other. 
And he says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this is whom he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You just hear the wonder in John's voice and the love in John's voice when he writes that for from his fullness, Jesus says, we have all received grace upon grace. And the way that verb would form is it would be really grace following grace, following grace, following grace, following grace, following grace. I need grace every single moment of my life if I'm to remain in relationship with him. He says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law that comes through Moses, when you look at Deuteronomy, and he has them standing on the mountains, he's, he proclaims blessings from one mountain and curses from the other. Ultimately, what he says is that, that if you don't keep all these commandments, you'll be cursed. And that's the reason there's a ceremonial sacrificial system, is so that that curse can be wiped away through obedience to the ceremonial law. He says, in Jesus, grace and truth are together. They're together. Moses gave you the law, and the law does nothing more than condemn us. It points out sin. It magnifies sin. It helps us to understand what sin is, and we understand the consequences of sin if we understand the law because we understand that it means we're separated from God until we actively do something to restore that relationship according to his commandment. We don't get to come just any way. We have to do it his way or we're not restored. And so grace and truth come through Jesus because they're together in one package. The truth is we are sinners and we need a savior. And the grace is, here he is, to die on a cross for us. He says, no one's ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And we see those themes play out again and again in the, in the book of John. We see them even at the Last Supper when they begin to ask him, hey, show us the Father. And he has to look and say, I've been with you all this time. You don't know? You don't see? They, they didn't know him until after the resurrection. They didn't fully know Jesus. They knew things about him and they believed certain things about him, but they didn't know him until after the resurrection, then their eyes were opened when the Holy Spirit was poured out and they began to really know him and began to really receive him. They began to truly be children of God. But then if you're going to be a child of God, you've got to act like a child of God. And how do you get there? And, and so that's the Galatians passage we have today. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith could be revealed. We could only do those things. We, we didn't know truly about God. We didn't really know. We just knew that he was the rule giver and the law giver. And David can celebrate that. And other prophets can celebrate the fact that God gave them the word, gave them the rules and the commandments and all that kind of stuff. He said, but we didn't really know how to rejoice in that. We were prisoners under the law. There was no freedom. And what, what does that mean that there was no freedom? The freedom meant that the, the freedom was given through the ceremonial law, through the forgiveness of sins, through the appropriate sacrifices being offered. But, but the law felt confined. But what it was, was it was teaching us what it meant to be God's people, what it meant to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation serving our God. He says, so the law then was our guardian. That's not a great translation, but it's about as good as you can do, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So that word there is pedagogos. And so that 
pedagogue is one who leads a child. It's two two words put together, child leader, and it's one who leads a child. And so it would have been a slave in the home of a wealthy Roman family who wanted this child to be raised up to be a certain kind of child. They needed to be strong. They needed to be brave. There were certain personality characteristics that needed to be in there. It was Stoicism was the Roman philosophy of the day, the Greek philosophy, really, of the day. And so that was being inculcated in these children by a stern slave taskmaster. And he accompanied that child everywhere it went, to school, to everywhere else, and taught them how to live by teaching them how not to live. It's mostly don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And by teaching don't, then you teach do. So you know the boundaries. That's what the pedagogue's job was, was to make sure that that child knew the boundaries and that it became the kind of child the parents intended it to be. And so it was not allowed to do and have any freedom. It it always had the pedagogue with it. It accompanied the child everywhere it went in order that that child be a certain kind of adult. But it had to be done early on. It had to be done at the heart level, and they had to see there's no other way to be. I don't have the freedom to be this other thing. I have to be this, and the pedagogue makes sure that you are. And that's exactly what Paul says the purpose of the law was. But then that was to lead us to faith in Christ so that we could have hope and freedom so that we could now live in a different way. We know where the lines are, but we know how to color in those lines. And we have the options of coloring with different colors in those lines. The law continues to have importance. The ceremonial law is what teaches us to get to the place where John was, where we need a Savior, we need a Lamb of God to take away my sins. And John says, there he is. That's the ultimate Lamb of God. All the ones that have ever been sacrificed before, yeah, they're just shadows of that one right there. And because John knew the law, John knew what a perfect sacrifice was. And that's where hope and freedom comes. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, he was Jewish. To redeem those who were under the law. We're all under the law, which is Paul's argument in the first, like, eight chapters of Romans, is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, whether you're under the written law or the other law, the law that governs the world. And you know that you've transgressed because you've not always followed your conscience. You've not always obeyed what you knew to be right. And so we're all under the law, whether we had the Torah or not. as sons. Again, we have the right to become children of God. And because you're sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. We recognize him now, not as the stern taskmaster, but as Abba, Daddy, Father, because of his love for us. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's who you are. Your status, that new name, is child of God, beloved child of God. Embrace that status, live from that status, and become like 
his one and only son through the power of the Holy Spirit.